Today is Tuesday, June 14th, 2022. Thank you for joining us here on Parkour Ed. My name is Colin Daly, and I have a special guest with me today. I'm going to let him introduce himself. Hello, Colin. Thanks for having me. Hello, everyone. My name is Benjamin. I'm usually called here Lausche, Mr. Perez. I am a Chinese Mandarin teacher here at PFS. What's your family name? My family name is Perez. There are different origins from the name. It's a Jewish name, although my family is not religious. Some say it comes from Spain, it used to be Perez with a Z, but got changed somehow. I don't know exactly. On my mother's side, however, we do come from a Spanish family. My grandfather came during the civil war in Spain and ended up in Biarritz, and that's also where my mother is from. What year were you born in? I was born September 25th, 1980, me and my twin brother. You have a twin brother. I do have a twin brother, yes. I did not know that. Identical twin or? We are not identical, but we do look uh, alike. You look like brothers, but you don't look like carbon copies of each other. No, not anymore. We used to look very similar to the point where, maybe I shouldn't say that, but he took my driving license test. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes uh, we got away with a few of the a few stories like this I uh, wonder if the statute of limitations is up on that you might not be able to return to France for a while <laughs> I know if you get caught it's a very heavy penalty I think you're banned for five years to take any official national test whatsoever we were 18 we did not realize how bad it could turn however we did it we did it we did it for a few things you know having membership uh, to whatever gym, movie... Sharing memberships. Sharing memberships was very easy. We had the same haircut at the time as well. So we actually had hair at the time as well. So it helped. And obviously there was a line and the line was the girlfriends. I was yes. going to say, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is the one thing, I mean, one of the few things we did not want to share. <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you for sharing that with us. That was really interesting. Might be too much information already. Were you born in the Biarritz area? No. We were born in the suburb of Paris, and we grew up there until the end of primary school. Oh, okay. Which suburb? Elisson, Bièvre. It's a very quiet town. It was close to where my father used to work at the time, so it was just convenient. It's actually a lovely town, really old town, a lot of history. Bièvre, so the name of the village, is also the name of a river that used to go all the way to Paris. I think they had to reroute the Seine at some point, and the Bièvre just had a different course at some point, but I'm not sure exactly what was the story. But La Bièvre used to go all the way to Paris. Interesting. So one brother, no other brothers or sisters? Then they're all stepbrothers. Five stepbrothers, actually. Wow. Now, were you older or younger? I'm the last one. I'm the Benjamin. Between your brother and you, you were the last one born. Yes. What's his name? Timothée. So you grew up in Bièvre, and then you went to primary school. And when it was time for us to choose where we should do our secondary school, my father was really, first of all, he wanted to go back, move back to Paris. He's a true Parisian. The schools nearby were not really up to his expectations, I would say. He wanted us to have a better education, I think. So he put us at the Ecole Alsacienne, which is a kind of a fancy school. Alsacien, was it a a language immersion school? I'm not too sure. I think it was mostly a religious matter, actually. I see. It it was a Protestant school. At the time when it was built, there were a lot of schools that were private schools. Obviously, public schools were uh, like... Secular. They were secular. secular, Yeah, yeah, secular. 
And for families that wanted to keep a religious education, the only way was to have a private school. And I believe that was how it started. Okay. Yes. So l'école alsacienne from Alsace? Yes. But you weren't learning in no, German no, dialect. No, right. So how was it to be non-practicing, culturally Jewish, going to a Protestant in school? Did that have any So it, it was impact? very secular already. There was no more religious education. It's what they call the gauche caviar kind ah. of public. It was all like, he's the son of someone famous. And so it was kind of a cultural shock because the friends I grew up with were much more simple people. I I was going to say normal people. Not so hoity-toity. Not so hoity-toity, no. <laughs> and then being there with the creme de la creme of the CZM was a different world. So it was interesting. I met some really good good friends that I'm still friends with nowadays. They really had a very broad opening towards the outside world. For instance, where I took my first Chinese lessons, I was in St. Kim at the time. It was like one of the three schools that were offering Mandarin at the time. And I think, I believe this is where everything started for me regarding China because I was hooked from that time and I did not pursue my study because it was late but eventually when the time came for me to make a decision about what I wanted to do with my life then I still had these really really strong memories of my first Chinese classes and my first teacher and I was like okay that could be a good idea I enjoyed it and it really gave me a positive experience that encouraged me to continue later on. So at this point, you started in Sankiem, a little bit of Mandarin. I assume you were studying English too. I mean, your English was very good. Actually, I did not. I started with German. What happened is the school did not want to put me and my brother in the same class. You'll be taking One... tests for each other. <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> Uh, possibly. So we had to choose. One had to take English as its first language, and the other one had to take German. And it was a bit of a ploof ploof. I got to study German as my first language. And then as my second language, I wanted to take Spanish because it was my family history. And I figured at some point in my life, I will have to study English. And even if I don't, French are well known for their very poor level of English. So I'll just blend in with the rest of the population. <laughs> when I actually first moved to China, I was 25, like permanently moved to China, I could not speak a word of English. Amazing. That probably Just, helped your Chinese, though. It definitely did. It definitely did. So let's not skip any steps, though. Yes. You went from your first lesson in Chinese in Sankyam. Yes. And then taking German as first language. Yes. Then, then there's a 10-year jump till you get to China. So what happened in between? A lot happened, actually. For reasons that are not worth mentioning right now, I had to leave the Ecole Zassienne and uh, ended up in a small lycée that was perfect for me to finish my secondary school. Once I, I finished with my baccalaureate, I took philosophy and social science at Nanterre University for a year. It was really interesting. But eventually, I realized that the only possible job probably were going to be education. And I did not want to become a teacher at the time. Philosophy is very interesting, but to put that into a real job is very challenging. So I was really into Chinese martial arts at the time. And also because both my parents came from the healthcare world. I felt like studying Chinese traditional medicine. This is how it all started again for me. 
with the Chinese world. My goal was to move to China, study in China, both martial arts and traditional medicine. So I took my first lessons at the INALCO, the French Institute for Oriental Language, and it was incredible. The teachers, they were all passionate. It was really, it's an unusual university. It's a very old one. It has amazing teachers, very interesting students, and I got, again, really hooked with the language itself. So my plan originally was to study two years and then move to China. But eventually I enjoyed studying Chinese so much that I finished my master's and for the, the final year, it was only eight students remaining. I think we were maybe 600 at the beginning. Among these eight students, five were Chinese nationals that were just here so they could have a visa to stay in France. So it was really three students and they had a scholarships program with China. So they asked me, Benjamin, where do you want to go? Just pick a place and we'll sort it out for you. And I chose Shanghai. It was supposed to be a one-year experience. It ended up being 11 years adventure. So when you went to Shanghai, you had already completed your master's. Yes. Right? This was a post-master's scholarship. A grant, yes. And were there any strings attached? Did they expect anything from you, like a report? Or was it like a gift for it, having made it? It was pretty much a gift. I wasn't part of any official program. Actually, they didn't see me much because they have a placement test. You know, they test you to see which group you should be following for the year. After the test, they basically told me that they will have nothing to teach me because I already had above the highest level. The curriculum at the Longzhou was really strong, really, really high level. Either you can go to a PhD or you just come, you know, come and go, just, just say hi sometimes. And this is basically what I did. I mean, I took a few classes and the teachers were like, look, just do what you want. But you did have a visa to yes. be there. What year did you first arrive in Shanghai? That was in 2005. At this time, Shanghai was so easy to get a visa. You could oh. pay an agency, they would sort it out for you. It was extremely easy. Or you could just sign up to the university, which was really cheap, and you will have a student visa. So staying in Shanghai was very easy. I did one year, I went back, and after a few months, I realized that France was not my place anymore. It was not the place I wanted to be anymore. So I, eventually, I managed to go back to Shanghai. I stayed there for bit more than a year trying to get a stable situation, which was really hard. It was only in 2006 that I started at the French school in Shanghai, at the Viscolaire, actually. At some point, one of the Mandarin teachers was sick, had to take a leave for three months. They were looking for someone to take over his classes for three months. They realized at some point that they were looking for basically people who could talk Chinese. That was pretty much it. And they realized, oh, but you speak Chinese? I'm like, yes, I studied Chinese intensively for seven years. And they're like, you want to try? And I'm like, sure. I tried for three months and it went fine. Then the following year, they needed another person to take over someone else. And I said yes. And eventually, the following year again, they gave me a full-time position. That's great. Like I told you earlier, being a teacher was never something I thought I would do, especially for so long. This is one of the main reasons I love this podcast. And I called it Parcours Head because your parcours or the trajectory you take to get somewhere is for some of us like the sport of parkour where you're jumping off buildings and doing incredible feats of improvisation and finally you end up someplace that you didn't plan on ending up but it's beautiful yes so it's interesting to see the path that brought you to the school in shanghai in 2006 did you maintain your martial arts practice and 
What about your Chinese medicine interest? Did you maintain that at all? I did not maintain the project. I did not go on with the idea of becoming a Chinese medicine practitioner, mainly because my father was a surgeon and medicine to him was something that has to be rational, that has to be based on evidence. So to him, there is no scientific base to Chinese medicine. He made me understand that obviously I could go on if I wanted to, but to him it has no value he hoped because i was very young when i started actually thinking about it 17 18 he hoped that i think about it thoroughly and uh, eventually asked me to do more research and i realized that yes it was probably right he passed away briefly after somehow i felt like we would never approve my decision so i just couldn't go on with it i did however continue to practice martial arts traditional chinese martial arts i had a shofu a master for four years i was his only student he will train me three four times a week in a little park in shanghai that was one of the greatest experience martial arts in china is actually one of the very few discipline left where the traditional values and teaching is still alive in China. So you're in Shanghai full of dreams about images you can have about China. You lived in Taiwan so I think maybe you know that the reality is often very far from what you could expect especially when you dreamed about it for years. Being in this super modern ever-changing city was very difficult to find any traditional aspect of it and finding a teacher like that having the real teacher disciple experience was amazing. That sounds glorious. I can't help, and this is just me making associations, but with your background coming from a father who's a surgeon, a mother in a medical field, and your love for philosophy, your exposure to Mandarin, and your curiosity, that it almost seems like a natural desire to tie those things all together. It seems like philosophy, medicine, and Mandarin would kind of lead to what you were interested in. It, it all blends in in a way, you know. It all has ties with each other, uh, especially if you take it from the Chinese way of doing things. Everything turns around a few set of philosophical concepts, and then they apply it to any kind of disciplines, martial arts, medicine, etc., so to me, it all made sense. Everything was related. Fantastic. Mm. I'm curious. Now, your twin brother. Yes. You and he drive similarly, but what did he end up studying? <laughs> he does Is... IT stuff. I couldn't even explain exactly uh, what so... he does. He spent a lot of time in Spain for study. He's very proficient in Spanish. Yeah. He's practically like a native speaker. I'm always curious about people's, how they end up speaking different languages. I was just curious. But... The focus is obviously on you. You stayed, you got a job at the French school, started yes. in the Viscolaire, and then you moved into teaching Mandarin. That was 2006. What year did you arrive here with us in Singapore? That was 2016. What brought you to Singapore? Pollution started to be a serious issue, especially after 11 years. I did not want to wait to the point where it started to be a serious health problem. A lot of people actually had to leave China for the same reasons. It's really bad. I remember living in Taiwan in the early 1990s, and the pollution was extremely bad. Then relations between China and Taiwan normalized a little bit, and all of the factories that were polluting Taiwan just moved over to mainland China. Today, when you go to Taipei, the pollution is nothing 
compared to what it used to be. So I can imagine all that pollution that was in Taiwan is now in mainland China. Especially when I first arrived during that time, 2005, 2006, basically up until the uh, Olympics in, in Beijing and the Universal Exposition in, in Shanghai, which was 2010. Olympics were in 2008. Only at that time they decided to move the factories away from these big cities. It got a little bit better afterwards. But it was still really bad. I mean, it's 21 million person living there with cars and pollution still coming from the nearby provinces. So it was just enough. It was a great experience. I enjoyed every minute of my life in Shanghai, but it's exhausting. I could speak Chinese, so communication wasn't a problem. But for a lot of people, it is. So eventually, I decided to leave China. I had no plans. I just had all my boxes ready to be sent back to France. The plan actually was to do the Silk Road. So go back to France without taking any plan. Overland. Any, any, overland, yes. So Trans-Manchurian, Trans-Siberian, make a few stops on the way, take, I don't know, maybe half a year, who knows. And eventually, one of my former colleagues from Shanghai, who was working here, Nicolas Liu, called me. He knew I applied a few years back in Singapore, and he's like, look, one of the teachers here just announced that he was going to leave next year. If you still want to join us, now is your chance. It was one week before the end of the school year. So I applied again, had an interview the next day in the morning, and the contract was signed on the same day. It's amazing how fast yeah. it can happen, right? You, you never know what's going to happen. You never Things know. pop up out of the blue. Yeah. Opportunities, it's whether or not you're ready to seize them. Yes, they're everywhere. And I think if there is something to be learned from these experiences is that there are always reasons to be hopeful and to be optimistic. Your life can take a complete new turn just from one meeting, just from one person or one experience that happens. Obviously, it can go both ways. But like you said, opportunities are everywhere and it's up to you to take them who knows what can happen after that so what year did you arrive here in singapore 2016 how has it been for you challenging uh at the beginning i hated singapore i mean i was coming from a massive city that never slept there was always something going on it was so easy to go around meet new people always something happening and I felt like Singapore was the exact opposite. So many restrictions. I mean, people probably cannot realize how much freedom you felt when you were living in Shanghai at the time. Today will be a different story, probably. And here, obviously, everything is a lot stricter. So many rules, so many restrictions. But at the end, I didn't want to stay any longer after six months. I thought this was not for me. But eventually, I started to appreciate more and more the environment, the safety, everything works. You know, when you live in Asia, being in Singapore feels like it's actually nice. Everything works. Everything's safe. Maybe too safe. But when you get older, I think you appreciate these things more and more. So I figured I was going to try another year. And I really enjoyed my job here. Moving around, discovering other parts of Asia was a great opportunity as well. So I decided, okay, I'm going to give it a real chance. Seven years later, I'm still here. I mean, six years is going to be seven soon. I'm also aware of another thing that you enjoy that you and I have in common. Motorcycle. Tell us a little bit about your motorcycle. My passion for motorcycles started really early. My father had a Honda 504. I think it's a 19. 
76 a bike that I still have in France. This is a project I keep for when I have time. These are beautiful machines and I want to turn it into a project. Uh, I don't want to keep it the way it is now. Cafe uh, Racer? Exactly. I'm in touch with a few places in Paris that I'm going to visit this summer. So I have a nice bike whenever I go back to Paris to roam around town. So it started very early. I was not allowed to have any scooters or whatever because, as I said, my father was a surgeon and every week, every weekend, he will have kids, teenagers coming in difficult situation after accidents. He just never, never allowed me to have a bike or a scooter. He explained to me that he only started riding after his 50s because he had already accomplished enough. He was mature enough to understand the danger. He told me when you're that age, you want to experience things and you don't realize how much you can lose. So I only started riding actually when I moved to Shanghai where big bikes were not allowed. You could only get a scooter and then electric bikes, which were actually very fun to ride and uh, as you know here in Singapore I got myself a proper bike that is a, a fabulous bike that I cannot wait to take to Malaysia maybe together one day I know you're waiting yeah, I know I'm it's, waiting it's, for my goosey to get out of the shop it's a painful yeah. topic for you right now <laughs> Uh, it's just the freedom of being on a bike is incredible. It's not about speed anymore. Having that unobstructed view of everything around you and feeling the environment, I think for me, it's also having space because let's face it, driving your motorcycle across Singapore is fun, but it's not the same as knowing that if you wanted to, you could keep rolling for seven hours right. and be somewhere completely different, yeah. which is a nice thought for me. So what's on the horizon? Any future uh, goals, plans? Yes, plans. So in Shanghai, I realized at some point that even though I enjoyed teaching Mandarin because I enjoy learning Mandarin so much, felt already that this was not something I will do my entire life. Teaching is a great job. It's very challenging. It takes everything. <laughs> I, I love working in education. I just would like to do something different. I feel like our job, language teachers, is not a job of the future of education. I feel like technology is replacing everything. I think that our job is going to change drastically in the coming years. I agree. I don't think it's going to change. I don't think it's going to disappear. I personally think that the tools are out there for self-instruction. Yes. But accompaniment, guidance, encouragement, those things are irreplaceable. Yes. The problem is, when are we going to recognize that the people who are there to do that are valuable and need to be there? It's almost like a mentorship role. Exactly. Absolutely. I agree. I think it will be a completely different job. Teachers are not going to be... It's not going to be about passing on some knowledge. The knowledge is already accessible. It's going to be more mentorship, coaching, whatever you want to call it. I'm not sure if they will value these new possibilities, this new role. I think there will be a complete switch in how education is made. I agree with you. I think that people like you and I, or teachers, will decide that this is how things need to be done and perhaps schools won't adapt, but we'll still be there and we'll still have students. Just like you had that relationship with your Kung Fu teacher, there are always people out there who need this kind of thing and then slowly it'll build. I mean, that's my optimistic viewpoint of it. Yes, it's hard to know where it's all going to go. I think there will be a wide variety of 
uh, how this technology will be applied in education. It's also great, you know, that if you grow up in a remote place in the world, you have a chance to educate yourself and have access to whatever knowledge you need to empower yourself. And this is basically what I want to do in my future. I want to work for organizations that help improving education in developing countries. So to get there, as the first step, my goal right now is to start a PhD program. It's challenging to see how I can manage working and studying at the same time. Hopefully it's going to work out. If it doesn't, I can still work on my projects. I have tons of ideas I would like to put in action, mainly on the field I actually have experience, which is teaching and learning Chinese. So yes, uh, a few options. Uh, I'm still very happy to be in Singapore teaching at the IFS. So who knows, I might still be here in 20 years. Well, I hope somebody out there listening to us right now might have some ideas for you too, maybe get a hold of you. It's been very interesting talking to you. I've really enjoyed having this conversation and I'm very grateful to you for taking the time and taking the chance to come in here and speak with us. Well, thank you. I was very happy to share and thanks for having me, Colleen. Bye now. Bye now.